Why don't we go ahead and pray, just ask the Lord's blessing on our time in the Word. Father God, Lord, now we come to this, uh, well, we just, we, we praise you, God, for just the this service already. I pray that it has been pleasing to you, that it has been a sweet aroma to you, Lord, for witnessing the the baptisms that we have to, Lord, the time in song, the time in prayer, the time, Lord, just even in our fellowship. And now, Lord, we will spend some time in your word. And Lord, we ask that your word would change us. That, Lord, we would understand it. That, Lord, it would be meaningful to us. We would understand how to apply it. And that you will use it, again, to grow and change us and make us more like your son. Myself included, Lord. And we pray this all in your son's name, Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you might imagine if any of us were to go to a job interview. And when you might be asked why you should be given this job, the person that you're interviewing with, the potential employer, would expect you to probably say many things about the fact that you are qualified for this job and how you are indeed qualified for that job. It kind of might seem a little bit of of self-promoting, but uh, yet it's what's called for in that kind of a situation. I remember in in uh, in my acting and movie days, you would go to auditions, and I would go to audition after audition after audition, and um, uh, and and it was you felt like it was not a time to kind of hold back. I mean, if uh, if the director I'm talking with says, "Yeah, so what have you been up to lately?" You didn't want to say nothing. I wasn't exactly going to, you know, get, so, so even if you hadn't been doing a lot, man, well, I've been working on this and I worked on that and maybe the thing was a year ago, but you still tossed it out there and you made everything just sound like it was the greatest thing. It was the most important, you know, film role that you ever had kind of the deal and, and you're doing a bit of the selling yourself. Well, you, you might imagine what would probably happen if, when asked why you should be hired, going back to your own uh, job interview, you responded with, well, I really don't feel like I have any great qualifications. And frankly, you probably shouldn't hire me because truth is, is I'm a worthless worm. I am a sinner through and through. And the only reason I will get this job is if by the grace of God, he desires me to have this job. What do you think? You think you're going to get the job? Maybe if it's a Christian organization, right? That might be exactly the right thing to say. Well, friends, when an elder or a potential elder considers the qualifications that we have in Scripture for being an elder, these qualifications, I think, will do one of two things. These qualifications that we have been going through will either humble the elder or potential elder... Where the elder understands well that indeed he is a worthless worm. And the only way he can attain to these kinds of qualifications that God sets forth is going to be by the sheer grace of God doing a work in that person's life. In that leader's life. Or these qualifications that we have been looking at will become a source of 
sinful pride for this man. And I pray for all of us now who are currently elders and for any future elders of Calvary Bible Church, it would be the former. So far, folks, in our study on biblical leadership, we have first learned that this is indeed one office of elder, which is comprised of three terms in the New Testament, overseer, elder, and pastor or shepherd. All three are synonymous with one another. We've also learned that an elder's We learned about an elder's calling and what's involved there, an elder's role. And when we got to an elder's qualifications, then we spent three messages on the qualifications just from Titus alone, some of which are mirrored in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, but not all of them. In fact, it turns out, I went back this week, and there are enough left over from 1 Timothy 3 that that really warrants this fourth and final message on an elder's qualifications. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and why don't we go ahead and we will stand for the reading of God's Word. So yeah, you get a little break here from Titus. Huh? We should all have that Titus passage memorized. 1 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> And you can, as we read along, see if you can pick out the ones that we haven't yet covered. Beginning in, we'll start in verse, well, we'll just go back to verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach... Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation and cured by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach. And the snare of the devil. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I just lost my place. Let me get back there. Well, the ones that we haven't yet covered, friends, here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are the following. An elder is to be temperate, respectable, gentle, peaceable, not a new convert, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So these are the ones that we will finish with this morning. First off, again, he must be temperate. Temperate. The word is also used of women who serve in verse 11 of older uh, men in Titus 2.2, and of how we all are to be in regard to the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 6. That of being alert and sober. Its literal meaning is just that, to be sober-minded, and especially in respect to wine. But the idea that Paul is wanting to convey here is that of being sober or clear-minded, level-headed. Also, it can be watchful or circumspect or having good judgment. 
One lexicon says, quote, it is the state of mind which is free from the excessive influence of passion, lust, or emotion. Excessive influence. It is to be calm and collected in spirit. I know that for me, friends, this is something that I need to be keenly aware of. Now, in case you haven't noticed, I, I tend to have a lot of energy. And, and, and with that energy, and I know that you are all praying, that energy will be sustained through the years here. So far, it's, it's, it's done me right. It's held up for me. Um, I can have a lot of passion. And this can be a blessing when I am able to direct it in a good and positive, Christ-honoring way. For good purposes. But I found that it can also be a curse for me. For when I let my passions kind of bubble up and then sometimes out, it might be in a negative way. When I'm not happy about something or I I get passionately upset or angry. And sometimes it's, it's simply too that I can just kind of with that energy overwhelm some people and come on too strong. I've had my own situations where I have had to apologize to someone for reasons of not being temperate towards them. I was looking in the scripture and came up with uh, David. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. And though he had his sins, he was also a man who demonstrated uh, being temperate on more than one occasion. You might remember when, when David was being chased uh, around the countryside by Saul, who wanted him dead. And at one point, he actually had the opportunity to kill Saul himself, but instead he just cut off a piece of Saul's robe. In other words, he didn't act impulsively or rashly, but instead he restrained himself showing temperance because he knew that Saul was still God's anointed and he did not want to go against the Lord in any way. And so that involved a, a temperate kind of, of behavior and, and um, mindset for David, even if Saul was acting in a horribly evil way. Later on in the wake of King David's sin of marital infidelity, lying and murder, there was much misery and rebellion that that followed him until he repented. And even then, God still gave him the consequence that his son, born to Bathsheba, would die. And yet it was in this time that David again showed himself to be temperate. And I just think while many people maybe in that some that kind of a situation just would have completely lost it with the Lord if they were told that their child was going to die as a result of their own sin, that they would not keep themselves clear-minded or level-headed or circumspect. And remember, remember that David so trusted God's judgment and decision in that moment when his son did die, he didn't scream and yell at God. He didn't raise his fists and, and, and curse God. He actually stopped mourning at that point. He changed his clothes. He anointed himself. He ate some food and he went into the house of the Lord and did what? Worshipped. He worshipped God. Even in his tremendous grief, he remained sober-minded, clear-headed, and of good judgment. It could also be said of Job, that Job was temperate. Remember that Job's wife, what she said to him when when just calamity was, was striking Job, she said, why don't you curse God and die? 
But in Job 2 and verse 10, it says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips, end quote. That's being temperate. Now, elders, elders in any and all situations, both inside and outside the church, must act and behave in a temperate manner. They must consistently demonstrate self-control and good judgment and discretion and common sense. They must be able to keep an objective perspective in the face of problems and disagreements. They must use great discretion and care while dealing with the flock and the, the personal problems of the flock. And especially with those, those sheep that might even try and bite at them. They cannot let things get under their skin or ruffle their feathers or cause them to fly off the handle. They must keep their passions and emotions in check. Even amidst the most volatile of circumstances, they must not act rashly. Rather, they are to be stable, self-restrained. They are to demonstrate balanced judgment. And this would include as elders in the church with all their duties and functions but also as temperate men outside the church before a watching world. Now this leads well into the next qualification that elders are to also be respectable. Respectable. The Greek word is kosmios. Kosmios, which we get the word cosmos or cosmos from, which refers to the order of the universe. In this case, it means Order in a person's life, that their life is orderly, decent, it is dignified, it is behavior which would be regarded by others as respectable or honorable. One Greek dictionary says, quote, having characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration or delight an expression of high regard for someone, end quote. This word also appears in 1 Timothy 2.9, describing the modest or well-ordered apparel of a woman. Now, just think of the kinds of qualities that someone you respect or consider honorable might possess. When I was a kid, I was in the Boy Scouts. I, I think I never made it past a second-class scout, though. That's only the second rank up, because it was uh, Boy Scouts or acting kind of thing, and I kind of went that route. I figure I'll play a Boy Scout someday, right? Okay, great. So, But in, in Boy Scouts, and if you were a Boy Scout, you had to learn something called the Boy Scout Law. And really, this could have been a definition for somebody who would be respectable. And some of you can probably say it with me. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. There we go. Phil Newton in his uh, book, Elders and Congregational Life, says this about an elder's respectability. He says, respectable implies that the elder's personal life is well-ordered, reflected in relationships with others. He does not engage in pretenses, but conscientiously guards his inner life so that his outward conduct might bring honor to Christ and the gospel. End quote. The great 20th century English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline and order. 
Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. Obviously, it is something that is thoroughly scriptural and absolutely essential. End quote. R.C. Chapman, who I quoted last week, has said, For those who are to exercise any office in the church, that of evangelist or pastor, it is not knowledge and utterance only which are needed, but also and above all grace and unblameable and an unblameable lifestyle. Excuse me. Unblameable lifestyle there being respectable. Elders are, again, to be respectable, honorable, decent, and dignified both inside and outside the church, including in their homes and in their work and in their play. They should have a well-ordered lifestyle that reflects biblical principles and doctrine in matters such as their even appearance or speech and behavior. This takes us to our third qualification. That of being gentle. An elder is to be gentle. It's an interesting word that we have in the scripture. Some synonyms for the Greek word there for gentle would be equitable, fair, mild, fitting, appropriate, lenient, yielding, and even forbearing. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 2 it says that Christians are to malign no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So, oh, okay, wait a minute. Some of these, again, are not just for elders, but are for everybody. In James chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy we see christ as the example of gentleness in second corinthians 10 and verse 1 when he says now i paul myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of christ and then in philippians 4 and verse 5 let your gentle spirit be known to all men now the problem that we sometimes have with this word Gentle is the same problem we often have with meek or mild. And, and we, we kind of start equating it with being unmanly or, or with being weak. Men aren't supposed to be gentle. They're supposed to be strong and tough. Well, Alexander Strock says this, the gentle man stands in vivid contrast to the pugnacious man. A gentleman exhibits a willingness to yield and patiently makes allowances for the weakness and ignorance of the fallen human condition. One who is gentle refuses to retaliate in kind for wrongs done by others and does not insist upon the letter of the law or his personal rights. The gentle shepherd must be patient, gracious, and understanding with the erring and at times exasperating sheep. End quote. I have a friend uh, up in the North State <clears throat> at our previous church, and, and he is a wood class, oh, it's wood class. He is a first class, a world class wood carver. And he specifically carves birds. And you walk into his house and you see these artistic creations that he has done. And the first time I went in, I thought, oh, they're, they're, 
it's taxidermy, it's stuffed, it's the real deal, right? And no, you get up closer and you realize they are all made of wood. And he doesn't like add little parts to them. It's from one block of wood. And his stuff sells for thousands and probably tens of thousands of dollars. And when he's making one of these masterpieces, he showed me a shop and how he goes through the process. He would never use like an extra coarse number 20 grit sandpaper and go against the grain on any of his creations. So elders, too, we need to be careful not to use the number 20, you know, extra coarse sandpaper when dealing with the sheep. Rather, we need to use that super fine number 600 that my friend uses when dealing with the cares and concerns and even sins of the flock. An elder is not to be a pushover, but he must have a yielding spirit, a kind and gracious, forbearing attitude that shows he is able to be reasoned with. This takes us to number four. An elder is to be peaceable. He is to be peaceable not contentious or quarrelsome. Being peaceable is something Paul commands of all people. Again, as we saw with gentle in Titus chapter 3 and verse 2. You remember he tells Titus to remind the church to malign no one to be peaceable. Gentle, showing every consideration for all men. It's amazing that we need peaceable elders to promote peace. Because sometimes life in the church can be anything but peaceable. And you think it shouldn't be that way. Of course not. But that's the way it sometimes works out. James says this in James chapter 4 verses 1 to 2. He asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's talking about inside the church. Friends, God hates these things. He hates contention and strife and division and fighting, especially among his people. I mean, what's Proverbs 6 say? In verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, even seven, which are an abomination to him. And then down in verse 19, one who spreads strife among brothers. And the problem with this is then too, it it affects us. It affects us all. In the body of Christ, a pastor, a friend of mine, he does a, a message that he'll take to other churches, and it's called Church Killers, in which he says this, quote, the Hatfields and McCoys are not just in Kentucky and West Virginia, sometimes they are sitting in church, of course, on opposite sides of the aisles. And unfortunately, it's sad to say, but there can be a lot of truth in this. Whether it's quarrels about the color of the carpet or the music style or so-and-so's holding a grudge from when they weren't invited to something. And, and, and this can be one of the most distressing problems that Christian leaders face. Therefore, they are to set the example by being peaceable themselves. 
As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 25, the Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Elders are not to be fighters or bickerers or quarrelers. Quarrelers, we, we learned that they're not to be pugnacious, right? Contentious, argumentative, or consistently opposed to others. They are, in fact, to be peaceable, even peacemakers. Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, he gives what he calls the peacemaker's pledge. This is good for all of us. He writes, quote, in response to God's love and in reliance on his grace, we commit ourselves to responding to conflict according to the following principles. Glorifying God, getting the log out of our own eye, seeking gentle restoration and going and being reconciled. And yes, the elders need to lead the way in this. But being a peacemaker, being peaceable is again for us all. This takes us to number five. Number five. The elder is not to be a new convert. Huh. Kind of an interesting one, huh? Look back at uh, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6. He says, and not a new convert... So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation and cured by the devil. Conceited there. The root meaning of this word is to be clouded by smoke or blinded by some kind of mist or fog. Metaphorically, it means to be blinded by conceit or, or puffed up with pride so that you are not seeing clearly. So a new convert has the potential to become conceited and prideful. And we all know what comes with pride, especially from passages like Proverbs 11 and verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Or Proverbs 29 and verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low. Or Proverbs 16 and verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Needless to say, God wants to see none of this happen in his church and especially not from his leaders. Now, what then does it mean that a conceited or new convert will fall into the condemnation and cured by the devil? So the Greek word here for devil is diabolos. All right. It means false accuser or slanderer. In this case, we also have the definite article in there. So we understand that it is talking about the devil, the devil. We see the same word in verse seven where it says the snare of the devil. And so we know that this is exactly who Paul is referring to. The next issue that we would want to consider is this phrase, condemnation and cured by the devil. I mean, what 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 does that mean exactly? The, the Greek text is literally condemnation of the devil. So the question becomes, okay, so is the, is the devil the one doing the judging upon the new convert? Or is the new convert being judged as the devil was judged for the same sin? Now, contextually speaking, I believe the latter is the better understanding for the simple fact that conceit, 
and pride is the same sin the devil back when he was an angel before he fell. That is what he fell into again, then followed by God's judgment upon him. And this is what awaits any newly converted elder who falls into the sin of conceit or pride. He will be judged. The devil received divine chastisement from God, and so will the elder be divinely disciplined for any sinful conceit. We're not saying he loses his salvation. We're talking about the discipline of the Lord in a believer's life. Now, a question on our minds might be, well, why is it that a new convert would become conceited? Why would they become prideful? Well, like Satan, when someone achieves a certain status or they are placed into a certain position of authority, oh, it can very easily go to our heads, can it? We can get puffed up and quite full of ourselves. This can even happen for a Christian in becoming a Christian. Well, yeah, look at me. Aren't I better than everyone else who's not a Christian? In this case, for an elder, the office carries with it a certain amount of authority and and one would hope even honor, which the temptation of pride and conceit can be too great for this new Christian. The new Christian might be very vulnerable to this kind of sin in the same way that the devil was prior to his fall. And the problem with this is not only will his conceit and pride adversely affect him personally and his relationship with the Lord, but it will wreak havoc Amongst the other elders that he serves with, with the eldership as a whole, and not to mention with all the different ministries that this man might be involved with. And of course, the sheep under his care. It will have a, 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 an effect on the church. Furthermore, a rogue elder in sin has the potential to adversely affect the church in regard to its standing in the community and whether or not that church is seen as A church that's above reproach or that elder above reproach out in the community. I mean, imagine the issues that that could potentially come up if a new Christian was kind of suddenly thrust into the limelight of the local church. You know, maybe maybe they actually like this newfound authority and and they kind of subtly start hungering for more authority or they even start to misuse the authority they've been given. Maybe their their new status and the, the pedestal that some in the church might have even kind of put them up on it kind of, yeah, boosts the old ego a bit, right? And maybe there's a, a temptation then to kind of start dipping their hands into areas outside of their purview or do things that they even have no business doing. Maybe they're not as solid as they need to be, doctrinally speaking, and where teaching is concerned, and, and, but they want to sound like they know more than they do. I got a whole pile of books in my office, and people come in, and they're like, whoa, do you read these? I'm quick to say, no, I haven't. It would be so easy to go, yes, man, aren't I a godly guy? So an elder must have a good handle on his own heart. The newer convert, um, maybe just their inexperience as a Christian or as a Christian leader would hamper them. The, 
the elder that's in a good and right place, he must be very aware of how his heart operates and he must be on guard vigilantly for sin. He must be keenly aware of his own weaknesses. And I would say that the the other elders that he serves with should understand what those weaknesses are as well. He needs to be on constant watch over his flesh, his heart, and of course the craftiness of Satan. And and the baby Christian just often doesn't know his own heart the way that he needs to know it or will eventually know it. He hasn't experienced enough the process even of sanctification of of yet growing in the Lord and becoming more like Christ and frankly how forcefully Satan may come after him. Now just so we're clear the problem is not the fact that somebody is a new convert. I mean everybody has to start somewhere, right? And frankly the newly converted are often filled with Things like zeal and excitement and passion. And they might be very spiritual and even knowledgeable and talented. The problem is, is they tend to lack maturity. And with that maturity, wisdom. The wisdom that's needed at this level when they come into leadership. The kind of maturity and wisdom needed to lead God's people, frankly, only comes with time and experience for which there is no substitute. Now, lastly, in our list this morning, the elder is to have a good reputation, a good reputation. Back in first Timothy, chapter three and verse seven, it says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And a lot of your uh, translations there might put in italics. The church, which means it's just not a part of the original Greek text, but it would be certainly implied uh, in saying with those outside. And that's what he's talking about. Now, I think we can all understand what it means to have a good reputation outside the church, as we've talked a lot already about being above reproach, both inside the church and outside the church. But why is that so important for an elder Well, Paul tells us in the second part of verse 7 when he says, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The word for reputation is martyria. Martyria. Yes, that is where we get that English word martyr from, which literally means a certifying testimony. Hmm. In other words, when we call someone a martyr, it is because that person's beliefs, that person's testimony has been certified in a sense, in that it has been witnessed by others. People will often earn certifications to to show that they have specific knowledge or skills. Certifications are usually offered by professional organizations or, or a company that specializes in a particular field or technology. I remember when our son Austin, uh, his last two years of high school, he joined up with the ROP uh, program as a firefighter and started to earn certifications in areas such as emergency management or basic medical or line handling, things like these. Elders are certified when the elders' character and testimony is witnessed by those outside the church. Who he is in regard to his speech, his actions, his 
character. His reputation must be good, above reproach, even outstanding in the community. And by the way, this is something that the scriptures say that, oh, we are all to do and be about, not just the elder. For instance, in Philippians 2.15, Paul says that we are to, he says, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. He's speaking to the people of the church. In Colossians 4 and verse 5, he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. And in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, remind them, Titus, remind the people there in the churches to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Wow, that's the third time we had that verse today, huh? First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That, that your good deeds and your excellent conduct outside the church may be just what is needed as you share the gospel with them for them to come to Christ. That's a big deal. So having a good reputation outside the church is not just for elders, but elders do need to be leading the way by example. If an elder is living a different life outside the church from the life he lives inside the church, what will outsiders label him? That's it. Hypocrite, it literally means actor. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Two-faced. It makes sense that God would deem this qualification so important, especially when you consider that we are often, oh, so very good at keeping up appearances, huh? Especially like in our social media too, right? Uh, we don't put the bad stuff. We just put all the great fun stuff. And people think, man, that, man that's a godly person. That's a godly. And then nothing goes wrong in their family. You know? Let me ask you this. Is it possible that someone, even a church leader, can come to church wearing their best Sunday Joe Christian outfit? And play the part of a model believer and then turn around and employ dishonest practices in their business or job? Is it possible that they can be involved in even ungodly activities, clubs, associations, hobbies? Is it possible for them to act one way at church and another way when they are out in public? Of course it is. Of course it is. So what happens if the elder succumbs and his reputation is indeed suspect? Look at verse 7. He will fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And this word for reproach, it's interesting. It's a a different word than we saw back in Titus 2 verses 6 and 7 where we saw reproach twice. But it does have a similar meaning. In this case, it is to be criticized severely. To bring extreme disgrace or dishonor or to discredit a person. Now furthermore, the elder also falls into the snare of the devil. Satan has set a 
trap for him. And when an elder decides to deviate from a right course of living out there in the world, and he kind of throws his good reputation and being above reproach out the window, then Satan's trap gets sprung. And he has now been ensnared by the devil. Snare here can be a trap. It can be a noose. It is most commonly used of catching animals. And it describes the snaring as being unexpected and sudden. And it carries with it the, the idea of deadly peril, loss, or destruction. I like to fly fish. And when I go out fly fishing, I tie a fly. Actually, my dad ties the flies. I steal his. But uh, I could tie a fly if I really needed to. But you, you make this fly of, you know, thread and feathers and yarn and whatnot. And, and you are trying to deceive the fish, right, into thinking that it is a, a, a yummy morsel to eat. And so sometimes if it's a, a, a stream that's real glassy and clear, I'll even get down like on my hands and knees and kind of slither through the grass. And I kind of have my eye on the hole and I kind of take my rod and I flip my fly so it just hits the surface and wham! The trout grabs it. And then, of course, I set the hook. And the hook goes into the trout's mouth. And we have a good old time together playing the fish. And then, uh, relax, I let most of them go. Okay, I usually do catch and release. So there you go. But, but I'm ensnaring him, right? It's not expected. Next thing you know, he is caught after he's gone for the bait. Metaphorically, for us, it. It speaks of the allurements and the seductions and the temptations of sin that the devil sets up for the elder. An example is 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9 where Paul says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, it tells us how unbelievers are already in the snare of Satan and how the hope and prayer then is that they, quote, come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, another key reason why an elder must have a good reputation among non-believers is because it affects the evangelistic witness of the church. It can do this to a, a great degree, which 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us that the church is the pillar and support of the truth out there in the world. And now with, with Calvary Bible Church's new focus this year and, and, and future years on community outreach, how do you think that would go for us if uh, as elders we all had poor reputations and are not seen as above reproach out there in the community because we are living hypocritical, sinful lives? You think we're going to have a great impact for Christ out there in the community as, on behalf of this church? Absolutely not. We should save our energy and whatever, not even worry about going out and 
trying to do some of these kinds of things. If an elder has a reputation for being dishonest in his business practices or a womanizer or adulterer or an alcoholic or drug addict or he's just foul-mouthed or he's pugnacious or any other obvious sins, Alexander Strzok rightfully says the unbelieving community will take special note of his hypocrisy. Non-Christians will say, he acts that way and he's a church elder. They will ridicule and mock him. They will scoff at the people of God. They will talk about him and generate plenty of sinister gossip. They will raise tough, embarrassing questions. He will be discredited as a Christian leader and suffer disgrace and insults. His influence for good will be ruined and he will endanger the church's evangelistic mission. The elder will certainly become a liability to the church, not a spiritual asset. End quote. The same friend that I mentioned earlier that does the, the sermon on the church killers and the Hatfields and McCoys and whatnot, um, uh, his name's Ron Schrock, dear brother. And uh, when we were at our, uh, the church up north, he was the um, kind of president of the California Association of Regular Baptist Churches. And so he would come and go and round and visit the churches uh, that were under that banner. And so he came up to Weaverville with his wife one time. And I don't know, they got in on like a, a Friday afternoon and just uh, went to the hotel there, I think, and unpacked. And, and um, um, we met up later on, or maybe they came in on a Saturday, but we, we met up later on for dinner or something like that. And he said, so... Sally and I, when we get to a new place, we like to go around the city. In this case, Weaverville is pretty easy, right? I mean, it's like, you know, going to take you 10 minutes kind of deal to get around town. But we like to go into local businesses and places and we ask about the church. We want to find out what kind of reputation does the church have in the community? What kind of reputation does the pastor have? How are they seen? Do people even know about the church? Are they seen as a liability or is they seen as an asset? I'm like, at this point, I'm probably just blanched. I probably just went white, you know, I was like, <laughs> and he goes, thankfully, you guys came out with flying colors. So we had a good reputation as a church in the community. I was like, oh, what would they say about us here in Burbank? What will be said about us? As hopefully we become more involved. I hope and pray that we are seen as an asset. Not a liability. And again, it starts with the elders, but of course it it feeds out to all of you as well. The elders need to lead you, the congregation, in maintaining a good, above reproach kind of reputation in the community for the sake of the gospel. What do we do with all of this this morning? It's not much different than what it's been in our application for these qualifications. One, Continue to pray for the ongoing qualification of your elders. Pray for future elders to be qualified. Pray for yourselves, for all of the qualifications that also apply to you. And pray for us as a church. And especially as we start reaching out more and more to the community. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer this morning. But Lord, as as the church body, first and foremost, we need to make sure that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is anyone here this morning, Lord, that needs to know Jesus as their Savior, I pray, God, that they would understand that they are sinners 
and that they have this need for a savior because their sin has the consequences of death and hell and the lake of fire. But God, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And I pray, Lord, for anyone out here this morning that is yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus as their savior, they would do so right now. Lord, they would just pray in their own heart, in their own mind, a prayer of repentance, of confession to you, and a willingness and desire to follow Christ because of what Christ has done for them, going to the, to the cross, then to the grave, but then resurrecting, Lord, from death, so that, Lord, we would know he is indeed God, and we too can have resurrection from the dead. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.